Father, we are indeed grateful that we have your grace to depend upon, that you deal with us not on the basis of who we are, what we do, not on the basis of our failures and our sins, but on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. That's the foundation. And, Father, we're so thankful that he did it all. He paid the price totally. It was completed at the cross so that now the issue is not our sin. The issue is our trust in you, faith alone in Christ alone at salvation, believing in him that he died on the cross for our sins, and then after salvation, trusting in your word, what you have revealed to us in your word, claiming your promises and walking forward in the Christian life. Father, there are many ways in which the scriptures describe our relationship with you and our ongoing walk with you. And Father, we pray that as we study this evening that we can come to understand that a little more clearly and a little more precisely on the basis of the scriptures that we're going to examine. And we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, before we get started, I wanted to find a hymnal for an illustration. We are, tonight, we're moving forward a little bit. I want to say a couple of more things about faith at the end of uh, chapter, I mean, uh, chapter 13, verse 11, where the Apostle Paul said, and made this reference to our salvation, which is nearer than when we first believed. And last week, I took some time to go through the doctrine of faith and what faith is, and you would be absolutely amazed, perhaps, if I were to start cataloging all of the things that are going on in the world of theology in trying to understand, comprehend, and communicate what faith is. I mean, faith, righteousness, a number of these other key concepts in Scripture always generate a lot of uh, discussion, and some of it is enlightening and some of it is not. A lot of it is not. But it seems like in every generation, just like every generation has to uh, earn its freedom, no matter what previous generations have done, there are those who have to fight and die to preserve freedom in each generation Each generation has to come to an understanding of the truth of God's word on its own, apart from the fact that that there have been generations before us who have laid the groundwork, that in each generation men have to come to an understanding of what the word of God teaches and be able to articulate it to their generation, just as you have generations of leaders who have to come to understand the principles of law, the principles of the Constitution, principles of freedom, and to carry those forward into their own generation. And this is important, and that's how we learn and grow. Uh, Somebody asked me the other day, I was on a radio interview, and somebody asked me the other day a question about uh, who influenced me in terms of my theology. And I talked about the fact that we're all influenced by a number of different people. We, anybody who gets in the pulpit anywhere stands on the shoulders of his mentors, his pastor under whom they grew up and they learned uh, primarily under their, on the shoulders of their seminary professors and on the shoulders of the great, uh, the great leaders of the faith, whether you're talking about Lewis Berry Chafer, Charles Ryrie, going back to 19th century Schofield, John Nelson Darby, going back even further to uh, people like uh, Calvin and Luther. Where we are today is, uh, is part, they were all part of that process of understanding the truth. Even when they go down wrong paths, it's part of the process of understanding the truth. And that's, that's true for us. We learn more from the mistakes that we've made than from the things we did right. And that's true in theology. As you, as people have run down uh, wrong tracks, we've learned from those errors. So we all stand upon their, uh, upon their shoulders. And today we are, there's a lot that goes on today, a lot of battles over just the meaning of, of faith. So I'm not going to bore you with a lot of those things. We went through an in-depth analysis of it of it last time, and my conclusion was basically that faith 
is an operation of the mind. It is an intellectual function, not an emotional function. It has a volitional element, but it is we choose what we believe. And so it is primarily intellectual. It's not volitional, and it is not emotional. So therefore, it has to do with an operation of the mind. Now, a lot of people think this sounds too, I don't know, too impersonal or too uh, too academic or too abstract when you define faith as simply intellectual assent, that it is... Uh, just it, it's an op- by intellectual it means it's an operation of the mind, and assent means that you agree that it is true. If you're not agreeing that it is true, then you're saying that it is not true. If you're saying it is true and you don't really believe it, then you're not really saying it is true. So if you're saying that something is true, you say, I agree with that, that is absolutely true, then anything less than that would not be belief. To say that you agree that something is absolutely true means that, uh, depending on how the, pop- uh, the proposition is articulated, but if the proposition is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, if you believe that that is absolutely true, that Christ died on the cross for your sins, then you're saved. If you believe that Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, but it doesn't have anything to do with you, that's not a saving proposition for you. You've, you've rendered it sort of a third-person abstraction that doesn't have anything to do with your own personal trust and reliance upon Christ. I also pointed out that, that faith in and of itself does not have any merit. It has no value in and of itself. It is simply a conduit. It's the means by which something is appropriated, something is embraced, much as a wire is a conduit for electricity or a pipe may be a conduit for water. It, it, faith is that which moves something from one place to another. It is not the valuable thing in and of itself. It is the object of faith that has value. So if we have the wrong object for faith, then the faith is not saving faith. If we have the right object for faith, then we do have, uh, then it is salvific and we do have salvation. So faith has no merit in and of itself. Faith is an intellectual activity, and faith is the means by which, and the only means by which, we appropriate God's gift for us. And and it is the salvation that is the gift of God, not faith that is the gift of God. This is another problem in the discussion, especially when dealing with lordship salvation and when dealing with uh, uh, many Calvinists who are more consistent Calvinists. Now, most people think anybody who's a little more uh, deterministic or emphasizes the sovereignty of God a little more than they do is more Calvinistic and or is a hyper-Calvinist. But those are all technical terms, a hyper-Calvinist, a five-point Calvinist, a super-lapsarian Dordian Calvinist, are all different terms describing different degrees and different beliefs within a Calvinistic system. You have people who are uh, considered four-point Calvinists, and what that always means is they don't believe in limited atonement, but they do believe in the other four points. And then there are those who are sort of, they might call them a a three-and-a-half-pointer or a three-pointer, and that's always interesting. It depends on how you define some of those points. I usually say I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I'm not a five-point Arminian. I'm neither Calvinist nor Arminian. I define all of those categories uh, in a completely different way, and I don't deny the total depravity of man, and I don't deny that God ultimately oversees his creation to the degree that he is able to bring about that which he intends, but he is able to do so in his magnificent omnipotence. He is able to do so without violating individual responsibility and accountability. So his creatures have the ability to make choices and are held accountable for those choices, and it is not God who predetermines what their choices, uh, what their choices will be. In, in these more hyper-Calvinist uh, ways of approaching faith, 
They will talk about faith as the gift of God. Often they will use Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but there are a couple of other passages that uh, talk about faith, and they will say that God gives you the faith. If you define total depravity as total inability, then if you're totally unable to comprehend or believe the gospel, then you're totally unable to express even positive volition. They never talk about it that way. And you're totally unable to express faith. So the faith that you have is something that must be given to you. God only gives that to those who are unconditionally elect. So God gives saving faith, and that makes it a separate kind of faith. God gives saving faith to the elect. He does not give it to the non-elect. And so those who receive that gift of faith then in turn are, are demonstrate their election by their works. That's what we mean by lordship salvation. Now, not every strong Calvinist holds to lordship salvation. Lewis Ferry Chafer was a very strong Calvinist. He had a strong background as a Presbyterian. He was ordained in the Southern Presbyterian Church. They actually brought him up on heresy charges because of his dispensationalism. But he was a uh, he was not a five point Calvinist. Now there's some debate that he may have been early on, but he wasn't when he wrote when he taught at Dallas and when he wrote his systematic theology. He was, but he did he while he while he held to uh, the P in tulip, you know, there's two flowers to describe theology. There's tulip, total inability, that's the five points of Calvinism, total inability, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. That last P is what's at issue. A lot of moderate Calvinists like Chafer only define perseverance of the saints as elect, as uh, eternal security. But there are many today who say that if you do not persevere in obedience and good works, then you weren't ever truly saved to begin with. You didn't have the right kind of, 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 of saving faith. And Lewis Berry Chafer did not hold to that definition of perseverance. So I would say he was more of a three-and-a-half-point Calvinist. Um, the other flower is daisy. That's the Arminian theology. Uh, when in reference to God, the Arminian pulls out a daisy and go, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. So it's either daisy theology or, or tulip theology, but I think that there's another theology that's somewhat in between that is biblical and not uh, based on those other systems. But it's interesting how some of these things will pop up. So just in terms of our conclusion from last time, first of all, we pointed out, I pointed out that there was no dis- biblical distinction between this concept of a head faith and a heart faith. No distinction. Heart is simply a figure of speech using a body part to symbolize and represent the thinking of the soul or the soul itself. So uh, the Bible doesn't know anything about this distinction between the head and the heart. Some people say, well, they had a head faith. They're going to miss heaven by 12 inches, the difference between the heart and the head. So that's just complete bogus. It may preach well, but it's not going to get anybody to heaven. Second thing I pointed out was that saving faith, as I just elaborated on, was not, is not a different kind of faith, but it's different because its object is the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. If you have a hymnal in front of you, you can take it out, and we're going to look at a hymn, uh, and that hymn is, I Know Whom I Have Believed, 409. 409. We're just going to get a lesson in uh, applicational theology when it comes to hymns. I wish there was some way we could straighten out this hymn because there's a lot of, of uh, positive things about this particular hymn. But if we look at the uh, second verse, I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart. Did you catch that? God is the one who imparts that saving faith. This was written by a Calvinist. 
uh, a high Calvinist. God imparts the right kind of faith that is saving faith. And he goes on to say, uh, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. And that's, that's fine. In the, um, in verse three, we read, I know not how the spirit moves convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word. And then what? Creating faith in him. See, that is this same idea that, that God creates faith. It's a different kind of faith, not the, not the same kind of faith. Uh, Latin would be sui generis, the same, uh, the same category of, of faith as any other kind of faith. So we see how these things show up in different things. That's just an example in one hymn. There are many others I'm sure I could go to. But this is even a contradiction to John Calvin. On John 3.33, Jean Calvin, it is pronounced in the French, says that to believe the gospel is nothing more than to assent to the truths which God has revealed. Did you hear that? That's what a good Calvinist believes. Not a Bezaite. Beza was his sort of his his uh, the, the man who followed him and really systematized a lot of Calvinistic theology, uh, not Calvin per se. And Calvin said that to believe the gospel is nothing more than to assent to the truths or propositions which God has had revealed. So, and then the last point, just by way of review, is salvation is not based on a personal relationship. Often that's a way in which the gospel is presented. Would you like to have a personal relationship with God? The only way you can get saved is through a personal relationship with God. There's always an element of truth in some of these things, but the Bible never says to be saved you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Believing on him results in a personal relationship with Jesus, but that's putting the cart before the horse. Judas had a personal relationship with Jesus, and it didn't do him any good. He was an unbeliever. What matters is faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, Salvation, or faith rather, is not an emotion. If we put an emphasis on emotion, then we will fail in the Christian life. The Christian life consistently, or the Scripture consistently emphasizes that the Christian life is related to belief and knowing something. That comes up to the two categories we talked about as part of faith, uh, understanding and assent. Understanding means we have to know the Scriptures. Assent means we have to believe that it is true. So now let's move forward. In this closing part of Romans 13.11, Paul is going to introduce the concept of light versus darkness or night versus day, and he's going to use a metaphor that is common for him, and that is the idea of taking off something, the same verb that's used in removing clothes, and putting something on. But what's interesting is that these two concepts of taking off and putting on are used grammatically in completely different ways. And if we don't pay close attention to the text, then we can really get confused. And and it took me a while as a young student of the Word to work through some of these things because of the nature of, of, the, uh, of the Greek grammar. You're not going to get this if you look at just look at the English that doesn't mean you should that doesn't provide you with an excuse to never read your bible just to recognize that there are problems with english translations but as i always tell students of greek and students going off to seminary that greek and hebrew do not solve all your problems they may solve some of your problems but they will often create other problems Language is limited. Anything that is finite and part of creation cannot adequately and perfectly express divine truth. It presents it inerrantly, but not comprehensively. So there is always a limitation in language, and language always has a certain ambiguity to it. And this is where you have to evaluate grammar and and uh, syntax 
on the basis of the analogy of Scripture, which is theology, comparing Scripture with other Scripture, because there are there are issues. One issue, and I briefly touched on it earlier in Romans. It's a problem in Romans. It's a problem in Galatians, and that is that when we read a passage such as Galatians two sixteen, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. It isn't that clear in the Greek. In the Greek, it is a genitive, and that genitive can mean by the faithfulness of Christ or the faith in Christ. It can be either an objective or a subjective genitive. This has become a huge arena of controversy and discussion in academics in Greek, and I've got a large book at home written by uh, each chapter is written by a different person. Some are proponents of one view. Some are proponents of another view. Uh, the preponderance of, of scholars argue that it's uh, an objective genitive. It should be understood as faith in Christ. And I was reading in there today. This is one of those issues you have to study every now and then. And I was reading in it today, and at the conclusion of one of the chapters, or actually it was two or three of the chapters and quoting several scholars, the conclusion was that grammar cannot resolve the problem. Syntax cannot resolve the problem. I mean, these are men who have probably forgotten more about Greek than uh, most of the people I know will ever learn. And and that's the issue. They, the grammar and syntax don't solve the problem. At some point, you have to bring theology and a comparison of Scripture to Scripture and other doctrines and contexts to bear on the particular passage. So that's just one illustration. So here we go into the rest of Romans 13, 11 through 14. Paul says, And this, because you know the time, that now it is time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. In verse 11, he is simply laying a foundation, a motivational foundation that as believers we need to wake up. We're living in a time where there is a limited option for fulfilling the mission that God has given us as members of the church. And so we need to wake up because we don't know when our time is up. Our salvation, that is our ultimate destiny, either the rapture or death, could come today, tomorrow, the next day. Are we ready? And we need to not waste time. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, redeem the time. Use it wisely. Don't waste it. So that's the foundation for the motivation here. Then he continues in verse 12 saying, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. What does that mean? Then he draws a conclusion. Therefore, because there's this short time, we're all short timers apparently, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So there we have two things, the imagery of darkness and light, day and night, and then we have this, the verbs there to take off and to put on. Verse 13, he says in a third person, excuse me, a first person uh, command that involves the him as well as us, let us walk properly. Here he's commanding walk by the Spirit. So he's bringing the whole doctrine of the Christian way of life, the Christian walk to bear at the beginning of verse 13, let us walk Properly, That would be walking by means of the Spirit, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. So he uses three pairs to give a focus on the fact that sin should not be a characteristic of the believer's life. In contrast, he says in verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So a couple of observations there in terms of those last couple of verses. Here in verse 12, we see the command is to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Putting on the armor of light is the positive. Removing the works of darkness is the negative. When he comes to that same topic and says it in different words in verse 13, 
positively, he says we're to walk properly. So by juxtaposing the end of verse 12 with the beginning of verse 13, what we see is that the proper and the appropriate walk is putting on the armor of light. Now, that's important because this tells us that putting on the armor of light isn't positional. It isn't related to what happened at salvation. It has to do with our ongoing experience after salvation. It's important to pay attention to that because Paul uses this terminology. I'm I'm preparing you for this now because this is not easy stuff. He uses put on and put off both positionally and experientially. And you have to be careful because just because you see put on, put off terminology doesn't mean he's always using it the same way. He he talks about the fact that at salvation we put on Christ. But here in verse 14, he says to believers, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So in one sense, we've already put on Christ. That's positional. In another sense, we need to put on Christ. In other words, his character, and that would be equivalent to walking uh, walking by the Spirit. So walking properly is contrasted with these three pairs of sinful activity, and then it is further expanded in verse 14 as putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is parallel to putting on the armor of light. They mean the same thing. They're just talking about the Christian life in two different ways. And then negatively, we're not to make any provision for the flesh to fulfill uh, to fulfill its lust. So that's just sort of a flyover of this passage to help us understand that, that Paul is really challenging or exhorting us to obedience. The time is short. Don't waste time. You have to focus on your spiritual life and your spiritual growth because you have no idea, and I have no idea, how much longer we're going to have in this life to grow to spiritual maturity and to fulfill the mission that God has given to each and every one of us. Okay, well, let's start drilling down a little bit. Uh, there's our motivation in verse 11. We'll go to verse 12. The night is far spent, he says. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Two things he, we see here. First of all, he's stating a principle in the first part of the verse relating to the fact that it is now night, but it's progressing. The word there in the Greek for far spent is the word prokopto, which means to advance or to move forward. So what he is saying is the night is far spent. This whole section is undergirded by Paul's sense of the imminence of Christ's return. He expects Christ to return at any moment. Now, there's a difference between the at any moment idea of Christ's return and the idea of Christ's soon coming. You can believe today that Christ is soon coming because as we see different things happen in the world, it seems as if God is moving things forward and setting the stage more and more for what happens after the rapture. And so we think, well, it could be soon. It may be in 20 or 30 years. For the last 50 years, or 60, whatever it would be, 60 uh, six years since Israel uh, reestablished herself as a nation in 1948, there has been this increasing sense that we're living very close to the time of the rapture. While we're not we're not date setting, that is, I think there's a parallel at the time that Jesus was born. We see the story of of, of Simeon and Anna in in. Um, Luke chapter 2, that have been told by the Holy Spirit that they won't die until they see the, Messiah, the Lord's anointed, until they see the Messiah. We see other people at the time of Jesus, we just know historically, that there was this heightened level of expectation that the Messiah was coming, and there were numerous pseudo-Messiahs that were popping up all over the place, and there was such a heightened sense of messianic awareness 
in the early first century that it, it really characterized uh, that particular time. And I think that for much of the same reason that we do today, there just seems to be so many things happening that it gives us this sense that it could be very soon. But the Apostle Paul thought it would happen in his lifetime. That's what imminence means. It could happen at any time. Nothing must happen before Jesus returns at the rapture. Not one thing must happen before Jesus returns at the rapture. There is no prophecy that must be fulfilled before Jesus returns at the rapture. Now, I want you to think about what I'm getting ready to say. The fact that no rapture must, I mean, that no prophecy must take place before Jesus returns at the rapture is not the same thing as saying that prophecy might be fulfilled before the rapture. Because the prophecy that might be fulfilled before the rapture doesn't have anything to do with the timing of the rapture, doesn't have anything to do with the immediacy of the rapture. It just may be part of stage setting for what will happen after the rapture. For example, if something were to happen today or tomorrow or next year that obliterated uh, the Mosque of Omar, the Dome of the Rock, and obliterated that so that there was nothing on the on the Temple Mount. It would also probably have to obliterate the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Then there would be a, a opportunity to rebuild a temple. There are numerous groups in Israel that have rebuilt the furniture. They've identified qualified priests. Uh, I saw a report yesterday. We don't know if it will end up being true. Uh, somebody sent me a link to a report yesterday that they've identified another potential candidate for the red heifer. A red heifer is a uh, has to have no other hair color but red, no black. There's one black hair that's disqualified. Uh, can't have ever worked. Uh, there are a few other qualifications, but the red heifer will be has to live to two years of age and be examined and then sacrificed and burnt offering, and then the ashes are used to uh, uh, to uh, sanctify the temple, the new temple. Now, we know that we're not under the law, and so we think, well, what does that have to do with anything? But remember, the Jews still believe the law is valid, and when they rebuild the third temple, the tribulation temple, it's an apostate temple. And so they believe that to be able to rebuild the new temple, they have to... Uh, establish it with a sacrifice of a red heifer. So that's these kinds of things pop up. There was 10 or 12 years ago, there was another potential candidate for a red heifer, and then uh, a couple of black hairs showed up and disqualified that one. And that happened, so uh, we don't know. But but let's say something like that were to happen, then the, the Jews could build a temple. People would say, "Well, Jesus hasn't come back yet. We must be in the we must already be in the tribulation." No, all that we know is that in the tribulation there will be a temple. There has to be a temple there for the Antichrist to defile it, to desecrate it. So that temple has to be built, but it doesn't have to wait until after the rapture for the temple to be rebuilt. It doesn't have to wait until after the tribulation for the temple to be rebuilt. The temple could be, a third temple could be rebuilt a hundred years before the rapture occurs. Paul expected it in his lifetime when he wrote Romans, and guess what? There was a temple standing on the temple mount when he wrote this. He expected Jesus to come back at any time. So, so even if some prophecies seem to be fulfilled that relate to something in the tribulation, it still doesn't affect the imminence of the rapture. The rapture is not dependent upon any sign. The signs are all related to what happens after the rapture. All it means is that God may completely set the stage and then wait another uh, hundred years before uh, the time is up. We just don't know, but we have to be ready at any moment. And that just undergirds everything that Paul is saying here is that the day is near. This is the Greek word ingus, which is used many times to indicate uh, the, the whole concept of imminence, that it is at hand. It could happen at any moment. So he lays that principle down the first part of the verse, and then he draws a conclusion. If this is true is what he is saying, and it is, that the day is at hand, and then 
we need to cast off the works of darkness, quit living like the cosmic system, and put on the armor of light. So as we analyze this, what we see is a contrast between two sets of, of two sets of words here, two pairs, that indicate this imagery, night and darkness, which always indicates something negative, and day and light, which always indicates something positive. We'll have to look at what the Scripture says about night and darkness as we go forward. Paul says the night is far spent. It's advanced. We don't know how far it's advanced. We assume that it's advanced pretty far after almost 2,000 years but we don't know. The night is far spent, and here we need to do an analysis of how the Bible uses this imagery of night and darkness and light and day. So uh, let's just go through a few of these verses. One of the first places we run into an emphasis on this imagery, this contrast between light and darkness, is in the Gospel of John. At the very beginning of the Gospel of John, as John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he goes on to say in verse 4 that in him, that is in the Logos, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Logos, in his incarnation, was life. It continued to be part of him. It's the same verb that he used in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. It's an imperfect tense, which means continual action in the past, emphasizes the eternity of the logos in past life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So what we see here is that the Jesus' life, the life of the second person of the Trinity, is identified by this equative verb with life. His light is life. His light is what gives life. And he says that his life is the light of men. And here we indicate the idea of one of the ideas presented in the light metaphor, and that is illumination and revelation, that part, part of the role of the second person of the Trinity is to provide illumination and revelation to men. He is the one, as we'll see later on in John 1.18, where John says no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. And that word for declared is the word exegeo, which is where we get our English word exegesis, which means to explain or to uh, instruct about him. So we learn about the Father by looking at the Son. This is why later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, if you've seen me, he's talking to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And John 10, he said, I and the Father are one. So if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. He is the one who reveals the Father. So he is the light of men. He It's his role to reveal Verse 5 we read, and the light shines, present tense. John is telling the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now that's an interesting word there for comprehend. It's the Greek word kata lambano. Lambano is the word that's used a few verses later in John 1.12. How many of you all know John 1.12? But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be, or authority to be called the sons of God. It's a contrast with the previous verse. It says that Jesus came into his own, and his own received him not. So this is the intensification of lambano, which means to receive or to take something in or to hold it. And kanta lambano has the idea of embracing something, making something one's own, or taking possession of something. So it came to have this idea of comprehension, but it's really more than just comprehension. Comprehension is a little weak of a word for this, but it does relate to that first aspect of faith, which is understanding. But catalambano means more than simply comprehension. It means comprehension, but to embrace 
that which you have comprehended. Again, this is used as a synonym for faith. We often talk about the fact that you need to receive Christ as your Savior. Receiving Christ as your Savior is the same as believing that he died on the cross for your sins. So Jesus appears to his generation. The light shines in the darkness. The world system is considered dark because of sin. They are apart from truth and apart from life. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not embrace it. The darkness did not accept it. The darkness did not believe in it. And then we skip a few verses, and John uses the light metaphor again. In between, he introduces the ministry of John the Baptist. In John 1.9, he says that, referring back to the Logos, was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. This is a principle of common grace since the Incarnation. Jesus gives light to every man coming into the world. It's part of general revelation. So... This this is the idea of light. It, 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 it indicates illumination, and it indicates life that comes from that illumination. Now, so the first principle that we see in relation to understanding night and darkness and light and day as it's used in the Scripture is that night and darkness are used to describe the state of the world under the condemnation of sin and living under the authority of Satan. And this is seen in these verses, John 1, 4, and 5, and John 1, 9. I'll repeat the principle again. Night and darkness are used to describe the state of the world under the condemnation of sin. In contrast, under point 2, Jesus is described as the light of the world. John eight twelve he says, I am the light of the world, one of the uh, famous I am, seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am is the Greek phrase ego emi, emphasizing that Jesus is the eternal existent one. I am. Ego emi means I am. That's the translation of the Old Testament name, for, personal name for God, Yahweh, from the verb uh, hayah, meaning to be. So I am that I am is how God defined his name to Moses in the Old Testament. So Jesus shows up and he keeps saying, I am, I am, I am. He's making clear claims uh, to, to deity and to, be, uh, and to be God. So in contrast to the night and the darkness, Jesus says that he is the light of the world and he has come into a fallen dark world operating on the darkness of Satan's lie and all the false world views in the world, and Jesus is bringing illumination of truth. John writes in John three nineteen, and this is the condemnation that the light, Jesus, has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, a lot of people read it, all men love darkness. It doesn't say that. It is a general statement of truth, a gnomic principle that generally it's true that men prefer the darkness rather than light, but not all. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They didn't want the exposure that illumination would bring. Like a bunch of cockroaches in your kitchen and you get up at three o'clock in the morning and flip the light on and they all scurry and scramble to run under the counters and hide. That's not probably not true of anybody's house here. But that does happen at times in some places. Okay, the third point. Jesus also defined his mission in terms of light. Jesus defined his mission as illumination. Uh, he states that he was, uh, he, in fact, he come, goes on to state that while he was in the world, it was day. His illumination is so bright that, he's, that he basically says that while he was there, it was day. It wasn't night. But that when he left, the night would come. This is, the way he states this is a little, it, this is an interesting verse. I won't ask any of you to explain it to me. I don't think you can. It's not easy. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. 
problem people have is they try to make, as I keep teaching you on Sunday mornings in Matthew, that these idioms can't be broken down into a word-for-word explanation. They are idiomatic illustrations of something, and this is probably a comes from a proverbial statement related to time, that the time is short to accomplish a job. And Paul sort of uses it in the reverse way that Jesus uses it here. And the idea is that, especially in the ancient world, think before the light bulb, think before they had uh, candles. If you go to Israel, uh, some of you remember this, you will see hundreds of thousands of different size little lamps that they would fill with olive oil and they would have a little wick and they would light that. And you just wonder how in the world they could ever see anything in the dark because they don't provide that much illumination. Pre-Thomas Edison, the world was a pretty dark place at night. And most of the time, the only thing you could do at night was to turn on your television and watch a soap opera. No, you couldn't even do that. You you just went to sleep. Sun went down, you went to sleep. Sun came up the next morning, then you would get up. So you worked during the day, but when night came, you couldn't work anymore because you couldn't see what you were doing. And that's the idea that Jesus is saying. It's just a very simple truth. While he's with them, it's time to work. But when I leave, when I go to be go to heaven to be with the Lord then you can't carry out the ministry as it was defined during the incarnation. What was the message during the incarnation? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When's John 9 take place? Early in Jesus' ministry or later in Jesus' ministry? More towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the, the message is still repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, as long as I'm with you, we have work to do. When I'm gone... It will be too late to accomplish the mission of this particular time. So Jesus uses that uh, imagery here of the night and the day to talk about the fact that we have a mission to accomplish and we need to hurry about the mission until the, before the time runs out. That's the same thing that Paul is saying, but he uses day and night in a reverse sense in, uh, in Romans uh, 13, he says, the night is far spent. He's talking about the current time in which he's living, the church age, and he's describing that as the night in contrast to the day is near because when our Lord, the light of the world, returns, he's going to illuminate everything. Uh, and we see that it, the light of the Lord is so great in the eternal state that there's no need for a sun or a moon in the future state uh, after in the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. So the third point is simply Jesus defined his mission in terms of light, teaching that it, using day and night as a metaphor to talk about the importance of getting the mission accomplished right now before the night comes, because when the night comes, the pre- present opportunity would be passed and would be gone. Uh, light is also used in contrast to darkness. Uh, it's used this way in various passages, but it's used to talk about our position in Christ. Very important concept to understand who we are in Christ. We are, as John twelve thirty six indicates, sons of light. When we were saved, we positionally are identified as sons of light. John twelve thirty six. while you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. Now, when Jesus is talking about this in John chapter 12, he's talking to the crowds. When does John chapter 12 take place? This is a, may sound like a silly answer. It takes place right before John 13. What happens in John 13? Jesus is having the um, Passover Seder with his disciples right before he goes to the cross. So John 12 is the last discussion of anything going on in the life of Christ before uh, all of the events related to the crucifixion uh, take place and happens right after he has raised Lazarus uh, from the dead. And in John 12, 36, he is pre- and in this section, he's predicting that he is going to be taken and crucified, and he's talking to the people, and he's having this inter, uh, interchange with the people. 
In verse 34, he says, The Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is where he is going. And then we come to the verse we have on the screen. While you have the light, believe in the light. So he's presenting a gospel presentation. They're challenging the people to believe in him that they might become sons of the light. Now, Peter talks about this also in terms of our position. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has, what? Called you out of darkness. We were all in darkness before we were saved. Into his marvelous light. So this is also talking about a positional transference that took place at the instant of our salvation. Now, this isn't the only place that does it. This is a great group of verses that talk about what happens positionally to us in rel- uh, and, and uh, relation to this shift from darkness to light. In Acts twenty six eighteen, as Paul is preaching, he says that he was called to open their eyes so that he, they may turn from darkness to light. Darkness is the pagan system, all human viewpoint from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan. So darkness is related to the dominion of Satan, to God, who is the ruler of the kingdom of light. So you see this contrast there, and what happens at salvation is that we are turning from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that we might receive Forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Uh, so he's talking here that this is what Jesus has said to Paul in terms of his mission. Jesus tells him that his mission is to uh, give them the gospel so that they can turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God and then move on to sanctification. It's a, it's a position of potential spiritual growth to ultimately having an inheritance that we receive at the judgment seat of Christ. Another parallel to this is Colossians 1.13. For he, that is Christ, delivered us from the domain, that's the word exousia, authority, that's the same um, uh, word that's used in John 1.12, for as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called, or the power, the authority, exousia, the authority to be called the sons of God. So we're transferred from the domain, the authority of darkness, and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're born in darkness and we're sons of darkness. That doesn't mean if you're female that you're not qualified there. It's, it's an appropriate term, understanding the time and the age. We're born as sons of darkness. But when we are transferred into Christ at faith alone, then we are now in the kingdom of his beloved son. That doesn't mean the kingdom's here. This is in terms of where we're headed. We are now qualified to be in that kingdom when it, when it comes. A couple of other verses that are tied together are 1 Thessalonians 5.5, 5, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So Paul is talking to the Thessalonian believers and say, this is your positional identity. This is who you are in terms of your relation to Christ. You're sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not, no matter how carnal and disobedient you might be, we are not of the night nor of darkness. In Ephesians 5.8, Paul says, you were once darkness. That was our identity before we were saved. We were in darkness. We were in the kingdom and domain and authority of Satan. But now we are light in the Lord. That's our position. But then he says, walk as children of light. Walk always has to do with our experience. So the fact that we are light in the Lord indicates our position in Christ. We are sons of light. But sometimes we don't live like it. Sort of like when you were a kid, maybe your your parents told you that you're not acting like 
a member of their family. You're not acting like a Jones or a Smith or a Williams or whoever. You are not acting like a member of the family. That doesn't mean you weren't a member of the family. It just means you were not acting like a member of the family or how they thought a member of your family should act. So we need to learn to walk as children of light. This is a term related to uh, enjoying fellowship with God and our Christian life. In 1 John 1, 7, uh, John says, but if we walk in the light, the if there indicates maybe we will and maybe we won't. We might not walk in the light. We're children of light, but we may not walk as children of light. But if we do walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It's something we enjoy. It's not a static position. We're not in fellowship with one another. We have or enjoy fellowship with one another. It's something that is richly experiential. And we have fellowship with one another. Why? Because we, it's preceded by the fact that we have fellowship. We're enjoying fellowship with God. Often you hear people say, well, I just can't get along with somebody. There's just some sort of personality conflict. What we're really saying is I can't get along with them because of their sin nature or my sin nature. It's really a sin nature problem. You see what the Scripture says, if you're walking with the Lord and they're walking with the Lord and the Holy Spirit is the focal point and the Scriptures are the focal point, there's not going to be any kind of personality conflict. What you're really talking about when you say that is uh, our sin natures don't get along. That's one of the things I try to tell uh, young couples when they're going to get married is that you really need to know the other person, not just in terms of how they are at their best, but how they are at their worst. There needs to be a thin nature uh, compatibility because if you can't put up with them when they're walking according to the flesh, then you're going to have some real problems. Uh, and that, that always results as the fact that we're focusing on our sin nature and letting that dominate. And uh, there are all time, always times in marriages when people get a lot, crossways with each other. But if your sin natures are incompatible, if one person's sin nature trends towards morality and the other person's sin nature trends towards immorality, you're going to have some real problems because you just can't understand each other at a fundamental level of your sin nature. But the redemptive factor for marriage and for all relationships is walking in fellowship in dependence of the Holy Spirit. And as long as we're doing that, we can enjoy fellowship with one another. And what is happening is that the blood of Christ, that is the, the blood of Christ refers to his death. And the, the results of his death are having a moment-by-moment impact in our relationships. The blood of Christ, the death of Christ, has an ongoing impact and cleanses us from all sin. That's the foundation. How do you recover from sin? How do you recover from sin in relation to God or sin in relation to other people? It always comes back to what Christ did on the cross. Grace is what enables us to overcome any kind of personality conflict or any kind of of difficulty that we have in those relationships. John 12, 46, Jesus said, I've come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And that word abide in Scripture always relates to fellowship. Now, I'm going to almost stop here. I want to introduce the next slide, and then we'll start with that next time. You see, we come back to this this fabulous diagram that really helps us understand these dynamics. On the left side, we have our eternal relationship, our positional relationship with Christ. At the instant of uh, faith in Christ, we are identified with him through the baptism of the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit in terms of his death, burial, and resurrection. And we, by identification with him, are sons of light. That's why I put this with a dark background and a white circle is to indicate the fact that we are positionally sons of light. On the right side, it's our temporal realities. When we're walking by the Spirit, we are walking in the light. We're walking by the light. We're walking in fellowship. But when we sin, the enjoyment of that fellowship is broken And we are out of the light. We're walking in darkness, according to the sin nature, called carnality. And it's only when we 
confess our sins at 1 John 1, 9, that we are restored to fellowship to continue that walk. So that's the difference. This is fundamental to understanding the passages that we're going to go to, that Paul in, in Romans 13, in Ephesians 4, in Colossians 3, uh, and uh, are, is talking about the most of those passages are talking about the right side, what it means to take off, means to get rid of those uh, acts of carnality that dominate our life when we're out of fellowship, and to put on that which is related to Christ. But there are other passages that are talking about who we are in terms of our identity, and they also use that put on and put off terminology so that we, when we're saved, we put on Christ. But then uh, we have a passage like um, Romans uh, 13, 14, that talks about the fact that we are to... Um, that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not talking about a uh, positional. That is talking about our relationship with him. goes on to say, make no provision for the flesh. That means we're not to walk according to the sin nature. So we're going to come back next time to continue our study on light and darkness in the... Um, uh, in the writings of Paul and in the New Testament and help us understand how to live the Christian life. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we have together to study these things, to be challenged in terms of our own personal life, our own personal walk with you, that we might be reminded that we are to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, not according to the flesh. We're to walk in delight. We're to abide in Christ. We will fail, we will sin, but we recover simply through confession and refocus so that we can move forward in terms of our own Christian life. Help us to understand these things and implement these things. Keep a focus on what we should be and not the way things are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.